What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Keep It Posy podcast. My name is Jasmine, and this is episode 95. Whoa, that's a lot. Thank you again to everybody who listens to this podcast. It's crazy to think that it's already been 95 episodes. So thank you, thank you, thank you. This week's nonprofit organization featured in the Posse Spotlight is Noise for Now. Noise for Now is a national initiative that enables artists and entertainers to connect with and financially support grassroots organizations that work in the field of reproductive justice. Noise for Now is the link between touring musicians, progressive promoters, athletes, artists, and local reproductive rights organizations in cities across the country. By organizing benefit events and campaigns, Noise for Now provides opportunities for artists and entertainers to use their talent to raise money and send a message that reproductive rights are human rights. To learn more or make a donation to Noise for Now, you can visit noisefornow.org. This week's episode features Courtney. Courtney is an editor for Eater Dallas and the host of Songs in the Key of Death podcast. In this conversation, we talked about her work, how she ended up working at MTV, The Shins, Death Cap for Cutie, Sub Pop Records, and so much more. This one was an absolute blast, and it was so cool to hear Courtney's story. I think you'll learn a thing or two. Here is my conversation with Courtney on the Keep a Posse podcast. Hi. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for taking the time. Twitter works wonders. <laughs> Facts. And I, and I remember who it was, too, that retweeted that, that I saw it on my feed. I'm like, oh, cool. Let me check this out. How are you? What, what, what's your day been like? You know, I'm pretty good. It's been a good day. I did a bunch of work for Eater Dallas this morning and this afternoon. I was working on um, this indie rock podcast in the 2000s, this like documentary type of podcast just pulling pieces out of interviews I'd already done and pulling them into the narrative for an episode. So I was making a podcast. That sounds like a very productive day. (laughs) Yeah, I got a lot done. So you just jumped into it. You talk about the podcasting and then what you do with Eater Dallas in the industry, I mean, I guess in any industry, but in the music industry, it's not always your day to day is not always the same. When you look at what you do as an editor and what you do with podcasting, how would you say those are different, but at the same time, similar? Wow, that's a great question. I mean, there's been a pipeline for a long time of people who've gone from um, music to food, like Andrew Stenthal and the infatuation, and he used to be a publicist at Atlantic Records. 
And he ended up starting a food site with um, someone else from Atlantic Records because they realized they were constantly being asked for like food recommendations, where to take artists when they were in town or where to take um, a business lunch or like where to go with people. Uh, and that's a that's a huge part. If you're in New York or LA, that's a huge part of the music industry, right? Going out to eat, um, especially taking artists out to eat or taking your clients out to eat, um, your people at Spotify, your people at wherever. So it's the only way you can get FaceTime with people, honestly. So it was this thing like a decade ago, longer than that now even, they launched the infatuation and it's become this huge, um, huge food website and now they own Zagat, which is incredible and they got all these investments but they're not the only ones like there was something happening 10 15 years ago with people in music kind of transitioning to food writing and i can think of a dozen other examples and it was people all over like from editorial like writers at rolling stone um people in the industry so it's like there's this connection i think that exists between food and music in like my generation and people a little younger than me that is really interesting um but i find i i was a music writer for a long time and i find writing about food um and telling people what's new and what's cool and what i recommend is so the same as writing about music it's very subjective um it's really service oriented and you have to find different ways to describe things all the time that it's not clear how they're different you're the person making it clear how they're different what you know what the point is if if this is for you what's going to resonate with someone and you have to write descriptively with food it's in a way that leaves them hungry and with music and it's it's in a way that makes them thinking "Ooh, i want to listen to that i'm going to go find it right now now i'm getting hungry <laughs> <laughs> yeah but okay i could see i could see the 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 similarities i didn't even think about that you know, with the big markets, when you have your artists in town, if you're at a record label or if you work in radio where it's like, all right, where are we going to take the team out? Because you could go so many times to a restaurant a year, but if it's an artist and they happen to be around once or twice a year, it's like, all right. It's got to be something more special. Yeah. Yeah. So that's awesome. So you talk about how you, um, you know, there was a group of people who have transitioned into the food stuff, right? How is it that you, um, cause you're writing about food now, but you're still doing podcasting within music. Yeah. So I guess the question is, is the podcasting stuff, was that somehow a thing where like, I still want to do something with music. I don't want to leave music completely. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever leave music completely, even if it's not my job anymore, it's always going to be super important to me, but it's like, it's more like food writing worked into my schedule of doing stuff with music. <laughs> Um, I have this really interesting setup where I have a part-time food writing job and then I spend the rest of my time freelance writing for different websites and working on this podcast that we're working on now. Um, 
And there's another podcast that we're, we've been slowly working on that I can't tell you anything about. It's a big secret. But the one we're working on is um, a retrospective about indie rock in the 2000s. And we've interviewed like, oh, so many of the bands, Death Cab and The Shins and Spoon and Broken Social Scene and Tegan from Tegan and Sarah and just like so many of the people too that were around then. So it's like, it's a very different thing. And it's really interesting to go from in one part of your day, just kind of writing stuff. And in the next part of your day, crafting something and creating something. And it's even weirder because for me, this is like, I worked in, at MTV at the time that all this stuff in the early 2000s was happening. And I was like the indie rock person. So it's like going back to revisit myself in my 20s, <laughs> thinking about what was happening. And I'll go down these wormholes while I'm doing it. It's just like, oh yeah, I have to listen to that song again real quick. Or like, oh, I need to just go like, look up what was the actual like reviews of this album, what did they say back then? Was it this or that? Um, what year did this TV, what year did like the OC start playing and what episode number was it that they name dropped to Death Cab? So I go into these weird research wormholes that are super fun, super nerdy. That is so cool. And it's taking me back to, that's sick. Because um, <laughs> I mean, at the time, I, I'm a big fan of One Tree Hill. And mm. I've seen the OC a few times, but never from the beginning to the end. So at the time, it's always like, oh, which one's the better show? Um, <laughs> or which one do you like more? But I, for sure, what I appreciated about the two shows is that they had the music aspect like down. Um, I'm not sure with One Tree Hill if it happened with every episode, but I do remember that they would name an ep the episode after a song. It was every episode, Grey's Anatomy did the same thing. And I didn't realize that until I started, I went into One Tree Hill old episodes and I was looking through exactly what songs they were playing. And I was like, oh, every episode is named after a song. Wow. Yeah, good times. Um, man, I feel like I also need to do an episode at some point with people who are like, dude, like these shows, they, they played these songs and all these other things. Um, but that is so <laughs> cool. So. I guess uh, you kind of jumped into it a little bit in a way, I guess, created the segue. You know, you talk about MTV <laughs> yeah. and you talk about uh, these indie bands um, and that uh, era of music. Um, so one thing I like to do, and I feel like I don't even know it, but I feel like you have a really cool story. Uh, one thing <laughs> I like to do is I, I like to ask people like, what was your introduction to music and musically throughout your life and throughout your career? How did you get to where you're at now? Wow. Okay. Well, it started with my parents' record collection. <laughs> I mean, like so many people, I loved to play it. And I mean, literally records, like the actual records. I wasn't allowed to touch them, um, but my stepdad would let me dictate and we would make a mixtape of which songs I wanted. So he would put them on and I would record them. Um, and that was like our thing that we did together. <laughs> it was our bonding thing. Um, and we, I also had a family that was very, we would play the game of, can you name this song in the car? And you would get roundly mocked if you could not. So I started really young accumulating information about who sang what and then what album it was on. Um, and 
later on, I, you know, went into my teen years and got into my own thing and it was all really uncool stuff. Um, and then by like college, uh, I thought I wanted to be a research scientist and that's why I went to the college I went to and ended up not liking the academics of it at all. And because it was in the early days of the internet, back in the wild, wild west days, and I was a big fan of AOL and their chat rooms, I ended up getting, um, strictly because I needed a free account, not because I really cared about doing this. I just couldn't afford to pay by the hour to be on the internet, but I liked it a lot. Um, I ended up getting jobs as a chat host on AOL for a bunch of channels. Um, and you would get a free account if you did that. So like the women's network and the style channel and eventually MTV, whose whole, um, whole internet presence was behind an AOL portal in the late nineties, which seems incredibly stupid. And it was, it was a bad digital strategy, but they did really cool stuff. Like they had a show called yak live where people, they would play videos and they would just like scroll the chat room chat underneath it. And you could see what people were saying. And it was really revolutionary at the time, like really compelling programming. And they had a tie in. Um, this was back when Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew's Love Lines was a talk show on MTV. Also, they had a tie in with that show where there was a chat room and people could ask questions and they would read it on the show and answer it. Um, so I ended up posting stuff like that and like being the bulletin board moderator for the real world and the road rules shows <laughs> and really ridiculous stuff like that. And I ended up um, getting an internship at M I was in Texas in college and getting an internship at MTV and going to New York for like three years in a row. And they had a little site called MTV local as well back then where they would let college students write about like their local music scene for credit course credit. And I did that for several semesters as well, just like made up independent study classes. And at the same time, I was um, working at my local radio station, which at the time was 94.5 The Edge in Dallas, doesn't exist anymore. Um, and I interned on the indie rock show, uh, the Sunday night specialty show, the Adventure Club, which was a big deal to people here for like two years straight. You're not supposed to intern for that long. And yet that's what happened back in the day. So the, yeah, when I graduated, I finally convinced one of the many people I'd interned for at MTV to hire me as a production assistant. And then I just kind of moved up and moved into the music programming department under the auspices of MTV.com, which was, it was a fascinating time. This was the 2000s by then and nobody cared what you did on the internet. They just treated it like a totally different thing than the actual TV channels. So I would put like all my favorite songs as free downloads on MTV.com. I'd be like, I love Rainer Maria, let's give away their music and book them to do a live performance or like, I love the shins. Let's just do a bunch of stuff, whatever I can do with their music. And like literally nobody cared. So it was fascinating and weird what you could get away with back then. And yeah, that's how I ended up at MTV. Wow. That's, that's awesome. Um, and you talk about, you know, you're not supposed to intern for so long. And it yeah. feels like that's the same thing, like across corporate places. It's like, hey, if they're not in school, like they need to 
Yeah. You need to let them go or they need to like, you need to hire them or something. Um, yeah. Yeah. That sounds familiar. <laughs> so That scam's still going on. Cool. <laughs> um, but no, that's really cool. So, um, wow. I have so many questions now. So you're doing your thing at MTV, you intern and you convince someone, yo, like I want to do this, hire me, yeah. you know, let me, let me be part of the team here and you work your way up. So I guess one question is when you ended up at MTV, cause I mean, MTV has also changed throughout the years. Um, so much. So and like, much. you know, you hear people talk about, man, like I remember when MTV did this and that and all this other stuff. But when you ended up at MTV and you ended up becoming a paid like you were an employee at that point and you weren't an intern. When did you realize like, Oh my God, like this is happening and I'm seeing a thing happen with these artists that I care about. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, there were several moments. There was the moment in 2004 when garden state came out and it had that shin song in it. And I had already been like, I'd already been harping on people about that band and we should do stuff and you have to listen to this album and blah, blah, blah. And that happened. And it was like, the world stood still. It was just like, okay. Everybody knew that the first album had already sold like a hundred thousand copies at that point. So we were not part of the story and people were like, okay, we whiffed it with this band. So what's the next thing? And um, Death Cab's Transatlanticism had come out in 2003, and I made them do a bunch of stuff. I was working on MTVU then, um, the, the channel that was for closed circuit broadcast on college campuses. And I made them do a bunch of stuff with MTVU. And I was like, it's going to be Death Cab. Like, you have to keep doing more stuff with them. You have to keep like building that relationship. And it turned out to be true because Atlantic signed them for that next album. But also the OC happened and the Death Cab mentions started happening. And that was a big thing. At that point, I could bring bands into the music meetings at MTV and talk about what was going on with them. And as soon as I said, and they were on the OC, everybody would be like, oh, really? That's interesting. So the kids like them. Well, we should talk about where we can put them. And it was so funny how people just assumed like that show meant the kids like them, when really it meant the kids were discovering them. They'd like just heard about them. Wow. Um, <laughs> it's just, I laugh because I'm like, oh my God, it's been that long. Um, you know what I mean? Like, it's just crazy. Yeah. Um, but wow, that is really cool. Um, uh, and you know, you're okay. While well, you talk about the shins, right. And garden state happened. Um, mm -hmm. and you're like, all right, like it's going to be death cab. I don't know if other people would agree with me. And to be honest, I don't even know if I'm going to edit this out or not, but <laughs> Sometimes it feels like the younger people are shouting at the top of their lungs about a band. And it's like months later, something happens. And it's like, yes, dude, I've been telling you this. Yes. Yes. I mean, I felt that way when I was in my 20s and working at MTV all the time. I would stress myself out trying to get like somebody to pay attention to these bands that I thought were really good. I tried to not do it though. There was a thing where in that scene, some bands 
didn't want to be associated with MTV or like didn't want that popularity. And it was really well known and I would like not hype them up. Um, but yeah, I used to call our music meetings at MTV, um, MTV Debate Club, because the way that they worked was everybody would come in and um, there was a point where I became the label relations manager for indie labels, like every indie label. That includes like hip hop music, metal music, just everything. <laughs> I was their point of contact. And then there were a bunch of other people that had, they'd have three or four of the major labels because there were more labels then and things were a little more spread out. Um, so everybody would come in with their research that they got from the labels, their talking points and like their um, list of what they wanted to see added that week. And then we had our own research, which would include a ton of stuff. It would include radio plays, but not nationwide. It would be like top markets and um, daytime only, no overnights. So we could, cause there was a big problem at this time with radio, like spiking spins into overnights and artificially inflating numbers and small markets doing that with payola. This was pre like the payola crackdown. And we would look at, like what were the top bands on MySpace? We had call out research, which I know you know what that is as a radio person, but for people who don't, they used to call people on the telephone, play them like 10 seconds of a song and ask them if they like it. And whatever people said, that would be how well liked and well familiar a song was. <laughs> and MTV had its own call out research. Um, and we would look at sales numbers from Billboard. We would look at chart placements. There was just like a never ending amount of data we would look at, but you look at all of that and you try to ascertain like what's bubbling up and what is big and needs to be bigger, like needs to be in a bigger rotation. Um, and you would think about it from the point of view of at the time in the 2000s, for the whole decade, it was like MTV was the teen girl channel. So what do teen girls want to watch? And MTV2 was the boy channel and it was a little older. So guys in their teens, and, but also their 20s. And what did they want to hear and watch? And then MTV Hits and MTV Jams existed. And it was very like, what is the coolest stuff happening that we can fit in there? Like the pop MTV Hits was pop music and it would be really familiar stuff, older stuff, and sometimes new artists to test them out. MTV Jams, those guys were the most concerned with like, what's going to be the coolest thing in hip hop. They, they would really blast out the like things that were already hits, but they really wanted to find the cool stuff that was coming up and what was going to be next. And MTV U, um, which I worked on with a guy named Yomi, who's at Apple Music now, he was like very into underground hip hop and I was into indie rock. And so between the two of us, we would like pack that channel out with those two things and then occasionally sprinkle some other stuff in. We would like be like, okay, I guess we can play the killers fine. That's awesome. I mean, looking at, at things now, you have all these platforms. You have YouTube and TikTok and Twitch. Uh, you know, people are just exposed to bands and artists through all, all these outlets. When you look at how the way things are now versus the way things were when you were at MTV, from your time at MTV, what do you feel platforms have still carried on throughout the years? And then what is it that you feel that MTV used to do that is no longer a thing with other mm. platforms? 
I don't know if that so, makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, the biggest thing that I've seen carry on is when I was starting at MTV, it was like the beginning of watching videos on demand online. YouTube didn't exist until 2005, which is a weird thing to think about, right? Like as I've been putting this podcast together, I've been going through when technology started and like we got the iPod in 2001 and Apple launched iTunes and the Apple Store in 2003. But before that, it was really hard to buy music legally on the internet. Like there were some places, but most people didn't do it. They just stole it or downloaded it from blogs. And then 2005 is when YouTube starts, but it's all like Charlie bit by finger and stuff. It's not music videos, it's clips of TV shows. I remember there was a long time that Viacom, the company that owns MTV was in a really protracted um, legal battle with YouTube over taking down Beavis and Butthead clips and the Daily Show clips. Um, because corporations didn't have a presence, like they didn't have a monetizing um, arm for YouTube and Google didn't own YouTube yet and they didn't have any way to like track the copyright on things. People were just putting stuff up, which is it's like really crazy to think that was just in 2005. So artists didn't start using it to put music videos on to for like a couple years after that. Um, so if you wanted to watch music videos, you had to go to MTV.com and Yahoo. They had a really robust music video uh, department and like that was it for legitimately finding the thing you were looking for. And people, a lot of people like streaming was hard, you know, you were still doing dial up in a lot of cases, uh, or if you had Wi-Fi, it was real slow. So it was a process still. Um, so that's one thing that has continued technology wise and only gotten better. Um, but it also is a big thing that contributed to like the downfall of MTV and their digital properties. They didn't ever have a good strategy as a company, as far as I could tell. Uh, but as soon as it became competitive, as soon as like YouTube became where artists went to just put videos instead of premiering them on MTV or on MTV.com. And then Vivo came along and the record labels owned Vivo. So they would do stuff with their own property first before they would do it with MTV. It was like very much the writings on the wall vibes. Yeah. Um, wow. And it's funny you, you talk about the streaming and like the demand, right? Because this was over a year ago. I talked to this band and the oldest member in the band, I mean, she's probably like 22 now, but I remember I asked them, you know, what was the first album that you ever bought? And they, they all kind of like gave me an answer that I'm like, why would I ask them this? Because by the <laughs> time they were getting into music, Spotify was coming up. So I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> Jasmine. But it's just like, it was kind of a habit question because I like to ask people that, which eventually I'm probably going to ask you. But uh, it's just like the timing of it all, you know? Um, yeah. And, and you're right because I'm thinking about also MySpace. Uh, yeah, that launched in 2003, which feels late. Like I thought it was before that, but it wasn't. It was 2003. Yeah, and I was going to say, um, you know, unless, you know, it was a single that the band had released, that was the only thing you could go to their page and listen to as many times as you wanted. Yeah, wow. Uh, wow. I'll tell you, I will tell you one crazy MySpace story that I've heard in the process of interviewing people for this podcast. 
So Sub Pop Records, as far as indie labels go, they were a bigger indie than a, a lot of the other ones. And they were one of the only indies that had their own new media person in-house. It's this guy named Dean, and he was great. Uh, but they would post MP3s on all their art. Like they built, they were one of the first indie labels to build artist web pages on their website. And they would post like the pictures and an MP3 of a song, right? Whatever the single was. And they were very like invested in it because they thought of it as the same as like when the people that worked there were kids, it was the same as like taking a cassette tape of a live show or like, you know, some other kind of low quality free recording because it's the MP3s were not a good quality in the early 2000s <laughs> or even in the mid 2000s. It was real low quality and they're just like, it just gives people a sense of what the band is like and they're doing it anyway. So they might as well get it from us so that it's safe, you know, and it's not filled with viruses or something. So the postal service, <laughs> which ended up being this sleeper hit that has been the second biggest album and sub selling album in Sub Pop's catalog has sold over a million copies and nobody expected it to. It's just like a side project of the guy from Death Cab who Death Cab were not anything special when that album came out. Um, they told me that in 2003 and 2004, they put up the single an mp3 of such great heights and we're quickly having to pay like ten thousand dollars a month to host it and they figured out it was because so many kids linked to that mp3 so that it would be the song that played on their myspace page automatically when anybody opened it <laughs> that they were paying the streaming costs for just like god even knows how many kids to have that on myspace Wow, that is crazy. My God, yeah. that album, though, hands down, I have to say, um, <laughs> I mean, whether or not they expected the success that it's been, <laughs> it's just incredible. Yeah, yeah. so good. Wow, that is so crazy. I know, wow. they told me that story. My reaction was just like yours. I was like, wow, you kept paying it, though. And they're like, yeah, we decided it was worth it. it. The album was selling enough, and clearly it was doing something. We couldn't like get enough information. There weren't enough metrics for us to tell what it was doing, but it was doing something, so we just kept doing it. <laughs> okay. Wow, that's cool. Well, I'm glad I learned about that, because I had no idea that that was a thing. Now it makes me wonder what other um songs whether it was them or if any other labels had to do it um or nobody doing else, it yeah nobody else has copped to anything like that like i interviewed a lot of other indie labels for this podcast and nobody has like come up with a story like that so that is so cool we talk about music of course and how you got into it and your time at mtv and i kind of gave it away already earlier <laughs> um but what was the first album that you ever bought? My first album that I saved up my allowance to buy when I was eight years old was um, Julian Lennon's Valette. It's John Lennon's son, and that was his debut solo album. And I was really obsessed with the songs that were on the radio, but I very much grew up in a Beatles house anyway. And I really liked, I didn't know it at the time that I liked John songs, but I did. I was a, I was a John person. And his voice just sounds so much like his dad. And I was really, really obsessed immediately. And I had to have it. And I bought the vinyl record and I played it on my little Fisher Price record player 
so many times like I had it memorized all the way through <laughs> just like tragically really annoyingly obsessed oh man but I think at that age it happens with everybody do you still have that uh, no it got oh. really warped I found it under my bed some years later and it had like gotten water on it and it was all warped beyond so I loved it until I didn't, and then I didn't take it anymore. Oh man! Well, you got you got what you could out of it, though. Yeah, indeed. A lot of ideas about love I got out of it. Oh my god! I wish I could go back to that age. What was the first show or concert that you ever went to? Wow. So I grew up in like the suburbs and it was an hour drive to Houston from where we lived. So there weren't a lot of concerts. Um, I didn't go to one until my 18th birthday, but it was literally the day of my 18th birthday. And I went to see R.E.M., um, who I was obsessed with, with Radiohead opening, <laughs> which is kind of crazy. <laughs> But yeah, that was, it was a great concert. It was really amazing, but um, it's kind of weird that I waited considering to how, how many concerts I went to after that. It's kind of like wild that I waited that long to go to one. Wow. Radiohead opened up for REM. Yeah, they had them open. It was on the tour in 96, which would have been what the album after monster whatever that was oh no it was the monster tour they did a two-year tour for monster and i was bummed out at the time because they had a bunch of different people open for them and luscious jackson were another band that were opening for them who i was really obsessed with and i was like oh i didn't get a luscious jackson date i got a Radiohead date mm. <laughs> but that was circuit creep and you know Radiohead didn't really come into their own until like the bins so Oh, wow. Um, damn, that's crazy, though. But like, I mean, it's just crazy to see how what happened after that. Um, I mean, yeah, they're one of the bands that REM mentored. They mentored Nirvana. They mentored Radiohead. They have really great taste in music. I went as a journalist to the Rock Hall induction ceremony in 2013, I think it was, the year that Nirvana got inducted and Michael Stipe inducted them. And he, I, that was what I asked him in the press room that year. Just like you and the rest of the band have really chosen these artists who have gone on to be like some of the most successful, most amazing, most critically adored and important artists of our generation. Um, you mentored them, like you took them under the, your wing whenever they were really young bands. Why? Like, how did you, I, how did you know? how could you tell that they needed your help and also that they were going to be those bands? And um, he had a really good answer. He was just like, you don't know, but you get this sense of people who are your kindred spirits and who, you know, can benefit from the wisdom of what you went through and you you just aren't selfish about it. You share it with them. That's so cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, Radiohead, headlining Coachella and all these other festivals and it's like oh my god um and you just think they just start off like all these other bands that are still trying to do it throughout your career what's the best advice that's been given to you uh I would say 
The best advice that I've gotten has been anytime anyone has told me to go with my gut, like trust what you want to do, stand by what you think, um, don't be pushed off course because it's really hard. There've been a lot of times that a lot of times in a lot of companies and a lot of positions where people are like, are you sure? Like, are you sure that's what is the best thing to do? And sometimes those questions have had like a lot of money behind them. Um, so it's, it's especially hard when you're talking about spending someone else's money, <laughs> but it's also hard when it's like, you're putting your reputation on the line. Um, and if you're not sure when somebody puts you in that spot, the best thing to do is to hit pause and talk to people that you trust and people that have more experience than you. Um, but if somebody is just looking at you in the eyes and saying, you're sure this is the right way to go though, and you know it is, always say yes. That's scary. Um, <laughs> right? Because, yeah. you know, whether it's uh, your, something in your job or something else in your personal life, you're like, yeah, is I think so, right? but it, it can be a little <laughs> bit scary. Um, it's even harder when you're asking yourself, I think. Like, I've gotten to the point where I know or I don't know if I'm going to be, if someone else puts me in that position. And if I, if I don't know, I don't try to bluff. But when you're asking yourself and, like, you're asking yourself, should I publish this? Is this really good enough? Like, that's really hard. <laughs> that one's tough. Yes. I think a lot of us, I mean, even might sound silly, but a lot of times you're just like, am I really going to tweet this? Think about <laughs> it. Okay, maybe just change the wording a little bit and then hit tweet. Um, but yeah, no, definitely. Uh, we're all, I think we've all been there at some point, but it is scary though when money is involved. Um, yeah, I think we've all been there in our day job somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's really cool though when you see the end result and you're like, all right, yeah, it turned out better than I thought it would. Yes, that's a great feeling when it all works out just like you thought it would. That's great. Yeah, no, that's awesome. What is your favorite thing about music? Wow, what a question. Oh my gosh. I mean, my favorite thing about music, honestly, is really self-centered and it's usually how it makes me feel. I use music a lot to like modulate my feelings, um, my mood uh, to get me into a place, um, to take me out of a place. Uh, it can be cathartic, it can be all-consuming, or it can just be something that helps you focus. Um, it can, you know, it can be so many things. I have so much appreciation for people who are able to take something that's their own experience or have a feeling and figure out how to put that into a melody and make you feel it too. I think that's the coolest thing in the world. It's so powerful. Um, I, that's everything to me. Uh, and I think everybody who does that is deserving of so much respect. That's awesome. And 
it feels like you know when you're in high school you're a college kid and you're listening to this band and you're like man and you're listening to the lyrics you're like that's some <laughs> deep stuff but if it ends up <laughs> happening to you you're like oh my god how could this is they now my life <laughs> like how did they write this let alone how could they sing about it because if you know the mm -hmm. feeling you're like oh um you yeah. know so yeah that's um it's i've heard an answer like this before but like the way you put it i'm like yeah because you <laughs> know it's um not everybody could write a song but we could all have that feeling yeah yeah that's deep <laughs> um yeah no that's really cool though um so i know that um last couple years have been hard for obvious reasons you know yeah. people, <laughs> we've all struggled in a way and the name of this podcast is the keep it posy podcast and i feel like people are like well toxic positivity is not cool either but you know we all do our best what would you say helps you through like the bad days what helps you stay positive well, I find that taking all my supplements, which is such an old lady thing to say, but like taking that D3, it makes a difference. You know, it does have a palpable impact and eating the way that I'm supposed to eat makes me feel better. And it also gives me a routine. I like when I can have like the day that I described to you today where I do, I know for this part of the day, I'm going to do this. And for this part of the day, I'm going to do this and i have an idea of how much i want to get done in each of those parts and maybe i get it all done or maybe i don't but making a dent in it feels good just having like some kind of schedule that moves me forward and meals are a part of that like i'm gonna take a break at 9 30 or 10 and make my little morning shake and then i'm gonna take a full hour off at lunch and i am gonna like watch some TikToks and zone out and i'm gonna eat something and I'm going to take my dogs outside and we're going to run around in the backyard for a minute. Um, and then, you know, at the end of the day, that moment where you get to like review what you've done, think about what you need to get done tomorrow and how you're going to section those time blocks off and have a glass of wine. And um, for me lately, it's been reading books at night. I've been getting back into reading um, and getting away from that that quarantine habit of like zoning out in front of the tv and barely remembering what i even watched um which is not great but i'm kind of replacing it with watching too many TikToks, and that is maybe not great either so books something totally different you know no screen um just having some structure keeps me moving it keeps me accountable it keeps me from feeling crazy. It keeps me from feeling overwhelmed, which is the most anxiety inducing thing. And it makes me feel like I'm still productive, um, even if all I got done were these little goals. It's something. Yeah, that's really awesome. Um, and I'm glad to hear that because I think for a lot of people, it's been about structure now that we're kind of getting back into some kind of normalcy. I know not, not everybody has been able to, but I feel like a lot of us are guilty about sitting in front of the TV, you know? Um, yes. 
and 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 yeah no that's really cool to hear um and i think um what you eat i definitely feel that because i uh I, I was like, you know, part of the reason why you were kind of stressed out for a bit, it's because you were dr drinking too much coffee. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Substitute a cup with some tea or something, you know? Um, but yeah, you're right. That gut health will get you. Like I've the last couple of weeks I have not been eating right and I've felt it. Like I can just feel it. I'm slow, you know? And so force yourself to get back on track. It's maybe not what you crave, but it does have a palpable impact i could see that for sure i i feel you 100 on that courtney i appreciate your time it was really awesome talking to you and getting to hear your story do you have any last words anything else you want to let the people of the world know yes i uh if you like the sound of the podcast i've described to you i have another podcast and it's called songs in the key of death uh, we've only done one season so far. Hopefully a second one is coming and it's only six episodes, but it's all about murder ballads, the true stories that inspired them and some of the most popular people that interpreted them throughout history and what they got wrong because they all got a bunch wrong. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I saw that in, in your Twitter bio. I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. <laughs> it's fun. It's a little gruesome, though. So if you don't like murder mm -hmm. content, there's a lot of murder in it then maybe no but it's really good stories about music too a lot of um the injustices that happen socially and the things that go around that make you know songs get twisted um so that's all very interesting to hear about i think So that was my conversation with Courtney. I highly recommend you give her podcast a listen. Songs in the Key of Death is a podcast and it's available everywhere you get your podcast. If you want to keep up with Courtney on social media, her Twitter handle is at Courtney E. Smith. To read her work about food, you can check that out over at Dallas.Eater.com. Thank you again to Courtney for being on the podcast. If you haven't yet, please check out the Keep It Posy podcast playlist. You can find it on Spotify and Tidal. As always, you can hit me up via email or social media. KeepItPosy.com for all the contact info. Thank you again to everyone for listening to another episode of the Keep It Posy podcast. Please take care of yourself and watch out for each other. Stay posy always. And remember, life is like a mosh pit. If you see someone fall, you gotta help that person get back up. <laughs>